morning, church family. Let's dive in, huh? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 6. Is it okay if I just dive right into God's Word? Those of you that are just joining us, we've been in a message series called All In, which it's really just a study in the book of Acts, and last week we finished up Acts chapter 5, and so I want us to just pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to now look at Acts 6. Are you guys enjoying this message series? Yeah, yeah I, I've enjoyed teaching it so much, and my hope is that as we go through this book that it will cause our lives to be more aligned with the things that we're reading about. And can I just say that when it comes to God's word, God's word speaks to every area of our life and the same issues that we're dealing with today that we're reading about here in scripture. I mean, really, when you think about it, not that much has changed over the past 2,000 years. And we're going to see that very thing as we dive into today's story. And so let's jump right in, all right? Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now let me just put on my teacher hat for a moment, if I could, just to give you a little bit of understanding and what's taking place here. This verse is talking about two different sets of people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now the Hebrews, or the Hebraic Jews, were those who prided themselves on being those who lived in the land of the patriarchs, and they used the language of their fathers. They also lived very close by to the temple where they would regularly worship. But the Hellenistic Jews were those who were scattered amongst the Gentiles. They would have spoken Greek, and they would have read the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. And they would have adopted a lot of Greek life, Greek culture, and Greek ideas. But because of this, there was a lot of jealousy, and the Hellenists often felt like outsiders. Now watch this. Neither of the two had any love loss for the disciples of Jesus, okay? And we're going to see that as we read uh, throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But let me just bring something to your attention here that I see in this first verse. The scripture says that the disciples were increasing in number while at the same time a complaint arose by the Hellenists. Can I just tell you that any time you see advancement, in the kingdom of God, the enemy will do whatever he can to stop that advance. In this case, it's complaining. And what really stands out to me here when you think about it is those that were complaining were actually those who claimed to be followers of God. Now, I mention this because when we complain, we essentially create friendly fire. Are you with me this morning, church? What I mean is we never advance our cause when we complain. We simply slow it down. See, just as I said earlier, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. As a matter of fact, I bet that you can't even go the rest of the entire day without hearing someone complain. 
But now watch this. While we may not be able to stop other people from complaining around us, we can choose to not join in with their negativity. We can choose to speak life. Now maybe you're wondering, well, how do I do that? Well, can I just first of all say that it starts with filtering your thoughts. Because the scripture says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. But what I have found is that a lot of people, maybe even most people, don't even apply any filter at all. Actually, I often hear people brag about the fact that they don't have a filter as if that's a badge of honor. No. You know what it is? It's an undisciplined mind. You see, complaining almost always comes as a result of an unrenewed mind. What I mean by that is like whenever you live like the world, whenever you think like the world, whenever you allow the things of the world to take up residence in your mind and and in your heart, then your words and your actions will be consistent with that which you've put within you. That's why Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And as followers of Jesus, we must pay special attention to the things that we allow in our life. And by the way, if you're not sure what those things are, let me just share with you what your filter needs to be. Your filter needs to be Philippians 4, 8. So anytime something comes to your mind and you're wondering, is this something that I should be allowing in or is this something that I should be rejecting. Here's your filter. You might want to write this down, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. All right, we just stop and talk about that for a long time right there because we allow a lot of things to come into our mind that are rumors and that are hearsay, but it's not true. If it ain't true, reject it. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable. So if it's not bringing honor to someone, you need to dismiss it. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now follow with me in this illustration if you would. I'm sure that probably most of you here have central air and heat in your house, right? Yeah. And if you do, then you have to uh, have an air filter, right? By the way, just a moment of confession. How many of you would say, uh, yeah, I've not changed mine all year. Anyone who would be willing to say, yeah, mm -hmm." that's okay because you're not going to get any judgment from this guy because I changed mine the last time, and man, when I saw it, it was so gross, like I wouldn't let anyone see it. Like I was hiding the thing, right, you know, and just running to get it into the trash can. But it got me thinking, what if we never put a filter on? Like what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. All the debris, pollen, and pollutants like the dust, mold, bacteria, pet dander, I don't know, fungal spores, all that stuff would be distributed all throughout my house. See, watch this. If I don't apply that filter, not only would it affect me, but it would affect everyone else that's in my household. Are you following with me? See, this is no different than what we're talking about whenever we're talking about filtering the things that we allow into our life. Like when we allow things in our life that shouldn't be there, it not only affects us, but it will also affect those around you. Are you with me? Let me just highlight two quick thoughts in regards to this first verse here in Acts 6. First of all, 
yes, the Hellenistic Jews were complaining, but there was a legitimate need to tend to the widow's distribution of the food. Now, I say that because like this issue right here was an issue that did need addressing. But watch this, guys. There is a wrong way, and then there is a right way to approach a problem. And the wrong way, I can tell you, is complaining. That's never the right way. Complaining is never the right way. Philippians 2, 14 through 15 says, do everything without complaining. That's without exception. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. And then the second thought that I want to highlight, and I just want to kind of pose it as a form of a question. Why didn't the Hellenistic Jews jump in and offer to do something about it? I mean, if you feel passionate enough about it to uh, complain about it, then you ought to be passionate about enough about it to volunteer, right? Like either shut up or uh, step up, <laughs> right? But I love that the disciples, they didn't allow that complaining to get to them, but rather they weighed what was being said, and they felt like that there was actually some legitimate truth to it. And this is kind of where we apply the idiomatic expression, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Like just because someone says something in a wrong way doesn't mean that what they're saying is wrong. You guys watch this. This is where we have to be mature, men and women of God, who can discern the difference between the two, to be able to hear what's being said, even if it's being said in a wrong way. Let's read the next Maybe five verses there, starting with verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parnius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now let's dive into what's happening right here. The disciples... They heard about this complaining. They agreed that there was some truth to what was being said, that the widows were being overlooked. And so they came up with a plan to ensure that this ministry was taken care of. The apostles knew that they couldn't do everything, and so they decided to focus on the one thing that they know that God had called them to do, and they chose to delegate the task to others. Now, this isn't going to be the last time that we see the apostles delegating ministry to others. And I want you, though, just to imagine, if you will, if all the disciples thought to themselves, but only the apostles can do the work of the ministry. Like, we're just regular people. It's the professional's job to do the witnessing and to laying on of hands and serving. Come on, y'all see where I'm going with this, right? Well, it's the pastor's job to invite people to come to church. 
It's those that have extra money that should be giving to the church's causes, not me. My job is just to come to church, drink coffee, eat donuts, sing a few songs, hear some preaching, and do it all over again next Sunday. But you see, watch this. If we live that way, then what we're doing is we're just conforming to the pattern of this world. The pattern which says, it's all about me. You exist to serve me. Your focus is to be on me. Because it's all about me, me, me. No, it's about him, him, him. Are you with me? And it's also about others. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 9.35. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. Now, let me just throw this disclaimer out there. We want you to eat the donuts. We want you to drink the coffee. We want you to sing. We want you to get the teaching. That's why we put all this out here, okay? All right? But watch this. Really, the purpose for why we do it is to equip you. It's to send you out encouraged, challenged, built up in your faith, equipped for every good work. Why? Because as 2 Timothy 3.17 says, so that you may be complete. And so that you're ready to go out to serve. I love what Ashley said earlier. I feel like this falls right in alignment with it. And that is that you will never be complete if all you ever do is receive. Let me say that again so that hits home. You will never be complete if all you ever do is receive. I feel like I've kind of switched from my teacher's hat to my coach's hat here, but saints of God, it's time for us to get off the sidelines and to get in the game, to be all in, if I can just throw that out there. And that's what we see happening here in Acts. They're putting in some new recruits to get into the game. They recognize that their quarterback couldn't be both the quarterback and the wide receiver at the same time. Are you with me? Not that they think that they're too good, to do that. It's just that they couldn't do both logistically. But not only that, but there were also those whom God had called to do that task. Which leads me to asking this question. What is it that God has called you to, but you've been content to allow someone else to do your job? As we'll read in the rest of the story, what you're going to find is that those who were willing to say yes to God God used in a mighty way. As a matter of fact, Stephen, one of the ones that the disciples chose, he started doing miracles. Verse 8 says, and Stephen, full of grace and power. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about this? Great grace, great power. Great grace, great power. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now watch this. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, if you'll make sure that the widows are fed, then I'll start doing miracles through you. Yet, that is exactly what God did. But isn't this just the exact model that Jesus gave us? Because he came not to be served, but to serve. And from that place of servanthood, he performed miracles. In case you're not catching what I'm throwing at you, write this down. God will work miraculously through those who are willing to serve. But I think that often we fail to maybe recognize what that service looks like because typically I think that we consider if we do this great deed or this great sacrifice, then 
God will use us mightily. But how are we ever going to do this great deed if we don't first do the small ones? And didn't Jesus address this very thought in Luke chapter 16, 10, when he says, whoever is faithful with very little will also be faithful with much? Like, just in case you're not exactly sure what that means, like, let me give you just a few examples to maybe, I don't know, kickstart your heart in, in, in this direction. It could mean something like opening the door for someone. Are you with me? See, it's the small things. It could be writing an encouraging note. It could be serving in the nursery or serving at a soup kitchen. Or how about this one? Being a good listener. Did you know that that's a way that you can serve someone? It's by being a good listener. And by the way, whenever you listen, you're telling the other person that you're interested in them. And I can tell you that when you're a good listener, it almost always, I don't know how, but it does, ends up with opportunities to minister to that person. Here's another one that we can all do. Smile. Need Kirk Franklin up here with me. I smile. Right? Come on. But have you ever just went down in the marketplace and someone just looks at you and you're just kind of going about your business and they say, hi, and they smile at you, right? Some of y'all smiling at me right now. I like it. <laughs> so, but it's good. Doesn't it feel good when you hit? But that's a way that we can serve people. It really is. Now, some of you might be thinking, a pastor, surely you're not saying that if I'll just go out and smile at someone, that all of a sudden God's just going to start using me to do them miraculously. Well, what I'm saying is God uses those who make themselves available. Understand that this is the criteria by which God calls people. We look at our ability, and God looks to our availability. He looks for a people who will say yes, even before they're given the directive. Now, just in case all of this just seems all too simple to you, can I just say, it is. It really, really is. How many of you know the story of Naaman? Remember Naaman, whenever he went to the prophet Elijah, and he asked Elijah to heal him of his leprosy? And Elisha told Naaman to go and to dip himself into the Jordan seven times and that he would be healed? But then Naaman thought, that's just way too simple. And he almost didn't do what Elisha had said. But one of Naaman's servants said to him, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Then he said, then why don't you do this simple thing? And so Naaman did so, and he was healed. By, by the way, that's 2 Kings chapter 5 if you want that reference. But I've always loved this story right here because it reminds me that God is in to the little things. I know that we often think that God is just interested into the big things, but look, let me just tell you, after 28 years of devoting my life to the Scripture, I can tell you, God very much cares about the small things and the things that we may consider insignificant. By the way, before we move on to the rest of the chapter, let me highlight verse 7 one more time. Verse 7 says that the Word of God continued to increase, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And now, it's easy to miss something that's being written by Luke here, but I want you to just notice that in the other times that we saw the advancement of the kingdom and it grow, he used the word added. 
But did you notice right here he uses a different word? He uses the word multiplied. You see, as the disciples were being obedient to the things that God had called them to do, making small steps of obedience, taking small steps of faith, that they went from addition to multiplication. But watch this. Multiplication has always been the plan of God from the very beginning. I mean, whenever you look all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says that God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and what? Multiply. Abraham's promise from God was one of multiplication. Israel was told to multiply whenever they were entering into the promised land. And all throughout the New Testament, we see God both adding and then multiplying. Now, this is where we need to kind of segue to the next portion of Scripture and mention that when God multiplies, the devil is going to do everything that he can to stop it from continuing. I mean, that's what he was trying to do earlier with them complaining, but now he's trying to take it to the next step. Verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Which, of course, Stephen didn't say any of these things, right? For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then it says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council sat, saw that his face was like that of an angel. Now, this right here, last verse, is the close of Acts chapter 6. But I want us to just stop and consider all that's happening here. Stephen is out doing signs and wonders, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there were those who were trying to come up against him and who even spoke lies against him. But the scripture says that they were unable to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Friends, when you are full of the Holy Ghost and you stand firm on God's word, he will lead you, he will guide you, and he will give you the strength to withstand whatever it is that's coming against you. Now, can you just picture this, if you will? A crowd, they're coming against Stephen, and they couldn't stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with him in a dispute. And so they secretly put together a plan to spread lies about him, saying things that he, that he didn't say. And so they bring him before the council, and the scripture says that after they made their accusations, they all gazed at Stephen. And the Bible says that his face was like the face of an angel. Wow. I mean, can you just try and imagine, like, what that looked like? I don't know what enters your mind whenever you think about what the face of an angel may look like, but I'm quite certain that it wasn't this little sweet, passive appearance. But I can tell you that it was something of power and authority 
that demanded one's awestruck attention. Because, I mean, think about it. Every time that you ever read about an angel in the scripture, what happens? Huh? Yeah, people like fall down in Abe and start worshiping, thinking that it's God. They're like, whoa, I've never seen anything quite like this before, right? But when Stephen stood up against his accusers, glowing with the face of an angel. And by the way, can I just say, that's kind of what I see it as. Kind of like Moses whenever he came down off of the mountain. And that glory was so bright upon his face that they couldn't even look at him. They had to, like, put a veil there. Whenever Stephen stood before his accusers, glowing with the face of an angel, he was just radiating God's wisdom and God's glory. Without speaking a word, Stephen's countenance gave witness that he was the Lord's faithful servant. Let me just pause the story for just a moment because I want to highlight an important truth. And that's that when we allow ourselves to be used for God's glory, people will recognize it. People will recognize that you've spent time with Jesus just like the disciples. They recognized that they had spent time with Jesus in Acts chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, this is speaking to us, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, Moses had a diminishing radiance that was upon him, but the Scripture teaches us, we have a greater promise, church, that we're to go from glory to glory. It says that we are transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Now, what does that mean? It means that God desires for us to reflect his grace, his goodness, and his glory. Like, maybe not in the same manner in which we're reading about here with Stephen, but God's will for each and every one of us is that we would breathe the fragrance of Christ both to the believer and to the non-believer. Jesus said it this way, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of of the earth. But if that light, if it never shines in the darkness, then what good is that light? If that salt isn't applied to where it's needed, then what's the purpose for even having it? How many of you guys remember the old Sunday school song, This Little Light of Mine? Remember it? This little light of mine. Come, come, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. Come on, don't leave me hanging. I'm going to let it shine. All right, we won't have to go all the way through it. But watch this. Let me remind you of the second the third verse, just in case you don't remember it. It was hide it under a bushel. And if you're really passionate, one of you said hide it under a bushel, then the Daniels of the world would go, no! Right? <laughs> hide it under a bushel. No! I'm going to let it shine. Then the third verse, I won't let Satan Blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Now watch this because this isn't just a cute little illustration. But the reality of this is as real as real gets. Because I know many who once said these things, believed these things. Yet today they've hidden their light or they have allowed the world and the things of this world to blow out the light. You say, what do you mean by that, pastor? I'm talking about those who used to pray. I'm talking about those who used to read their Bible. I'm talking about those who used to witness to people. I'm talking about those who used to go to church. And now they've fallen into deception. And the deception is this. They don't realize what's at stake. 
Because eternity, my friends, is at stake. The souls of men and women are at stake. Brothers and sisters, if what we do here matters in eternity, and God's word explicitly says that it does, then should not every day of our lives be centered around him? My heart hurts so much because I see the millennial generation who I pastored when I was a youth pastor for 15 years. Yet now many of them, not all of them, Thank you for the millennials that are here that have not walked away from your faith. You give us hope. But there's many of them who have, um, they've walked away from the church, and now they have kids of their own, and their kids will never know the beauty of being in a local church. And I'm guessing that they're probably not sitting around the table sharing the gospel with them either. Some would say, yeah, well, it takes a village, and I've got my village. Well, let me tell you something. You don't want the village helping raise your kids. You're going to want a church. Are you with me? And listen, I know that for some of you that are watching this on video, um, you might be thinking, well, but the church has hurt me. Really? You too? (laughs) Try being a pastor, (laughs) right? No, the reality is that people have hurt you. But they're going to hurt you at work. They're going to hurt you in the marketplace. And they're going to hurt you in your family too. Why? Because watch this. Everyone is hurting. But catch this. Look up at me. Hurt people hurt people. Are you with me? And we are all hurting. But watch this. Here's what we've got to do. We've got to find healing and look past the hurt by looking to the healer. Now let's look back to our story in Acts. Stephen's face is shining like that of an angel. And now in Acts chapter 7, Stephen delivers a fiery sermon. I'm not going to read all of it right now because it's, it's lengthy, but he delivers a fiery sermon in front of the high priest and the whole council, which takes up the next 53 verses. And his words, they strike them right at their core, so much so that they dra- drag him outside of the city and they stone him. And in Stephen's last words, he says the same as his Lord Jesus did as he was being killed. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he died. And with the closing of Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to a man named Saul, who later gets renamed by God as Paul. I'll introduce you to him next week. But Stephen was the first recorded Christian martyr. Isn't it Interesting that just last week we were talking about the persecuted church and praying for the persecuted church. I think God's trying to grab our attention on this. But Stephen was the first recorded Christian martyr. And watch this. His story still speaks to us today. And it leaves us with a few questions that we must ask. As the worship team's coming up, let me just present these to you. Will I speak the truth of God's word even when? Heavy opposition comes against me. Or will I keep the words of life to myself? Or two, am I willing to do anything that the Lord asks of me, regardless of what it costs? Will I serve where serving is needed? Will I speak truth when truth must be spoken? 
And then three, even though none go with me, will I still follow? See, the interesting thing about the story of Stephen is that we don't see any other believers like at his side right here. Now, no one knows exactly why, or it could be a good explanation for that. But let me ask you this. Should we find ourselves in a similar place as to where we're all along in our convictions? Will we stand strong even if we're all alone? One of the things that I love about the church is that we don't have to be alone. Yet when we say that we're doing church at home on our own, which almost always results in separation and isolation, that doing it by yourself mentality requires no accountability. Subsequently, it doesn't give us the encouragement and the challenge that we need. Now I want us to just ask this one question. Stand with me if you would. I'm going to leave you one last question. One last thought. And it's the very last thing that Stephen said when he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Let me ask you something. What sin has someone committed against you and you need to forgive them? Maybe it's a relationship that's hurt you or a situation that's happened and you've blamed God for it. Perhaps it's something that happened to you from someone at church or maybe even from the pastor, right? Hey, let me tell you, uh, we are not perfect, perfect, not in any stretch of the imaginations. But I know that God desires each and every one of us to move forward and to grow in our love, to grow in our faith, and to let hope to arise within our hearts that we would fulfill our God-given purpose all for his glory. Amen. Would you guys join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that it would be buried deep inside the soil of our heart. And I pray that your words, that they would be a light to our feet, that they would be a lamp into our path. Cause us to shine forth your goodness and your love as we go forth. And may each and every one of us let go of the pain and the hurt that's from our past. And may we be about our Father's business. May we speak truth, offer forgiveness, and share the good news of Jesus at every turn and every opportunity that we can. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. And all the church says, amen. Come on, let's worship, church.